Welcome back to the podcast. My guest this week is Tim Maurer, a scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, you're the co-director of the Cyber Policy Initiative uh, at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, what exactly is that and what is your role there? Yeah, thanks for having me um, on this podcast. I'm delighted to be here and to participate. The Carnegie Endowment is an international affairs think tank in Washington, D.C. Um, we actually now have centers around the world in Beijing, Brussels, New Delhi, Moscow, and Beirut, because we really strive to look at policy from an international angle. And the Cyber Policies Initiative specifically looks at the impact of hacking and offensive cyber operations on international affairs. So we are interested in the types of effects that could either destabilize the international system, could destabilize the internet, or could have an otherwise systemic impact um, on a specific type of critical infrastructure. And your personal focus is on nation-state type attacks, this kinds of cyber, cyber mercenaries, uh, uh, nation-state operations, uh, countries' investments into offensive operations. Whether it's for benevolent purposes or for or for espionage or for uh, corporate uh, uh, type attacks, that's primarily the heavy focus of your work. Yeah. So the the given that we are a think tank and we focus on policy, we are naturally focusing on governments as one of the actors through which you can influence um, the policy itself. Um, but part of the reason why I decided to focus specifically on proxy actors was because it, it's very clear that we are not only looking at states as potential malicious actors, right? So we also need to look at how states use hackers to protect power. Um, and that's the reason why I specifically focused on on proxy relationships over the last several years. Well, how, how do you define proxy relationships for, for the benefit of our audience who may not be uh, familiar with the, the jargon? Yeah. Um, great question. And it's actually, um, normally when you hear proxies, there's kind of a negative association with it. And it means that there you have some sort of state that uses a, a hacker for plausible deniability or other reasons. Um, for my specific research and book, I took a slightly broader approach um, to how I look at proxy relationships. Um, because I was interested more generally in how states use hackers that are not part of the state. Um, so I have a slightly more, a slightly broader definition than than what's the general definition in in the popular literature. And you, you just quickly mentioned the book. I should mention that uh, your book is called. I have it here. Your book is called Cyber Mercenaries: The State Hackers and Power, and it's it's this exploration of this relationship between states and hackers and how it's being used. Uh, primarily for offense, but on the defensive side as well, like you mentioned, you know, protecting power plants and 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 using offensive technologies within some sort of system to uh, as part of official government policy. What, what what would you say is the big takeaway from the book? Yeah. Um, so first of all, I should mention that uh, I didn't choose the title. Uh, the publisher thought it was a sexier title. I thought it, I think it's was. great myself. <laughs> um, and. When I, so I started writing this five years ago when everybody was talking about cyber war. Um, you just had this book come out back in 2011, Cyber War, and everybody was talking about this 
very much through the lens of um, states that were fighting each other. But when I was talking to the hacker community and the security research community, everybody was kind of pointing out, this is not just about states. This is um, if you're a non-state hacker, uh, there's actually a significant amount of harm that you can do as well. So the main takeaway from the book, to answer your question, is uh, we can't just focus on states as the main players in this. Um, we also need to look at uh, hackers that are not part and not working for a military or an intelligence agency. And we need to look at how these hackers are being used by governments. So that, I, I think that's the main argument in the book that uh, this whole notion of cyber war is incredibly state-centric and doesn't really tell us much about the reality that we need to pay a lot more attention to to proxies and non-state hackers. Right, and the reality is that every state has has already heavily invested in this. It's happening across the board, um, uh, including among superpowers, smaller nations, we have a, a, a lot of nation states hiding behind these quote-unquote independent hackers or mercenaries, as you call them. So uh, I mean, we're, in a, we're in a reality now where it's happening. We just have to get used to it and figure it out. And one of the things I wanted to talk to you, three big, big picture topics I wanted us to talk about. But you have focused uh, or, 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 the, or your organization is focused on, um, on, you know, setting up some ground rules around uh, 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 malicious activity that could have a negative effect in the financial system, this global inde- interdependence, uh, the fact that we have to rely on this trust, and the fact that any sort of uh, any sort of betrayal of the trust in our global uh, in the global financial system could have uh, consequences that 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 are you know really unimaginable. We've already seen uh, cases where nation states have targeted uh, uh, the infrastructure that powers our global financial system. The the SWIFT attacks being the obvious one, but there have been. You know, other smaller uh, nation-state type attacks. I remember Gauss was going after banks in certain parts of the Middle East and really uh, looking at financial transactions there. Um, yep. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how much of a worry this is, or 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 am I being overly paranoid that this is a a, a significant problem that needs to be addressed at a very very high level among nation states? Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. So what we've seen in the last so. We've had cybercrime for as long as the internet has been around. But I think what we've seen in recent years is that in addition to cybercrime, we've seen more severe incidents that occur. Um, The Bangladesh incident and the exposing how the SWIFT network was able to be exploited was a wake-up call for the global financial system. Um, And we also know that you've had most likely a state actors that have targeted banks in the past. The Gauss uh, incident, I think, is an example of, of conventional political espionage. Um, what, the reason why we focus specifically an entire project on the financial sector is because I think we are, there's a concern that over the next two years, we might see actors go beyond trying to steal data or to steal money, and that people will actually try to manipulate the integrity of data or cause a lot more disruptive effects targeting financial institutions. Right. And, and, you- and they've already proven it with this Olympic destroyer just recently, which may have been just kind of like, here's what, it's, here, here's what I'm capable of, kind of a warning. Yeah. 
exactly. there's also a destructive component to it that could be at play. Yeah, exactly. And because um, I th what worries me is as soon as you get people who will start actually manipulating the integrity of data, that's when you quickly, as you mentioned, uh, this could erode trust and confidence in the system writ large. Um, so what we've proposed is that you actually get the G20 because they're the 20 largest economies in the world uh, to issue a declaration that makes clear that this is considered to be off limits um, and that you have the international community focus on this specific threat and actually cooperate when there are incidents that could uh, threaten financial stability. Um, and if you think about it, it's actually even an area where you might get some of the states that usually don't agree on most other things uh, come together because global financial stability is something that is as much in the interest of the United States as it is in the interest of China. Um, Russia, yeah. India, or any, any other uh, major, organize, uh, major, major state. And there's precedent for it. They've done it in, in, in other areas where... Uh, in warfare, for instance, there's certain ground rules and your, your proposal on the ground rules of not messing with the financial infrastructure, the financial system is uh, three part. It's agreeing not to manipulate integrity of the financial data, uh, agreement to cooperate when this manipulation occurs and some sort of detection system for this uh, level of manipulation. Can you dig a little deeper into what the actual proposal is? And if possible, if you can talk about uh, what the response has been. Uh, to uh, the center going public with the proposal. Yeah, happy to. Um, so the first pillar is the commitment uh, of not manipulating the integrity of financial data and not to undermine availability of critical systems. So this is essentially the G20 committing that they won't do this. Um, part of the reason why we think this can actually work is that there's evidence of significant self-restraint. There's a New York Times article that the US government considered using offensive cyber tools back in 2003 against Saddam Hussein, but didn't do so because it didn't want to target the financial institution. Um, so that's the first pillar, the G20 committing that they won't target financial institutions in a way that could undermine financial stability, uh, which is supposed to send a clear signal to, for example, North Korea or Iran, which we also know has been quite aggressive, um, that this is something that the international community considers off limits. Now, apart from sending the signal, the second pillar of the proposal is that the G20 member states would actually agree to cooperate when incidents occur. And that is really meant to um, be the real benefit of the agreement in that you get the states to commit to cooperate in either arresting criminals who are involved in these incidents or in mitigating DDoS attacks, uh, sharing information. So it's essentially meant to be a catalyst for uh, more robust cooperation against uh, cybercrime. Um, as you know, the, the Convention on, Against Cybercrime that was agreed to 15 years ago, you have several of the main players around the world that don't want to become part of it. I'm and still to it. Um, and then the, the third part, any such agreement is obviously only as effective as the detection and verification mechanism. So you can actually know whether an incident occurred and whether somebody has violated the agreement. Um, now, the good news is when it comes to the financial sector, a lot of these banks already have systems in place to detect intrusions because they want to protect against cybercrime. 
so we don't have to start from scratch because a lot of these systems are already in place. Do you have high hopes uh, for this? And I'll tell you why I'm asking, because we've, I, we have seen nation states uh, uh, betray and destroy trust in software updaters. Uh, we've seen a major campaign actually compromise Microsoft Updater. The, the, the spin-off of that is once you compromise the trust in something that should be used uh, uh, by default to keep users safe and you compromise that trust, then people turn off their updaters. We've compromised the trust in vaccination in Pakistan when they were searching for bin Laden, for instance. We were doing fake vaccinations in in a place that desperately needs these vaccinations for, uh, you know, I think I believe it was polio. I might be getting details wrong. But we've seen in the past, whenever these operations require it, that they'll, uh, uh, states will push the envelope and not uh, not think or not bother with the consequences of this. And I brought up those two because those were the first things that came to my head right? in the Stuxnet flame attacks, the, the, the destruction of trust in software updaters, destruction of trust in, in vaccinations. And we've seen it in other areas as well. Uh, yep. And I wonder if you expect to get traction with this uh, and what has been the response so far? Um, yeah. Um, so, yes, we do expect to get traction on this. And there's actually been already quite uh, significant support for it. Um, and I'll get back to that in a second. I think what you just mentioned in terms of uh, both the vaccinations and, and the, the update, the, the abuse of the update mechanism um, that's a general Such challenge a dangerous for any norm. Thing. Yeah, and it, it's a general challenge for any norm, right? The fact that you have a, a, a global norm um, to protect certain uh, trust or confidence mechanisms, those don't, that, that means sometimes these norms will be violated, and it takes a very long time to rebuild a, a norm when you have these violations that occur. But that's the whole reason why we call them norms, because they're meant to be aspirational um, outlines for what we consider to be appropriate. Um, so I think there is value in having these agreements because it allows us, when something does happen that's a violation of it, to publicly condemn it and for people to reevaluate whether it was actually worth um, the risk. Um, now, with regard to your question in terms of the support, we. So we have been working on this for the last three years, and we first kept it pretty quiet and talked to experts in government and in the financial sector uh, in private conversations to get feedback on our proposal. And um, we then decided to publish our idea in March of last year. And after we published it, we had several financial institutions who then approached us and said that they thought this was a really interesting idea. Uh, so Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase publicly have supported the idea. Um, you've had several former senior government officials who've publicly spoken about this. For example, um, Secretary Chertoff was the uh, Secretary of Homeland Security during the Bush administration. Uh, we had a member of Congress write an op-ed where he's explicitly referenced our proposal. Um, so there's definitely great interest in, in the idea. And... Um, um, I haven't really come across anybody who who rejects the underlying assumptions and who says, no, this is a bad idea or this couldn't work. Um, some right. people who criticize it have, have criticized it for different reasons, but none has criticized the underlying Right, but I worry, I worry that uh, 
even signatories or, or, or folks that agree with it, uh, when they need to go that last mile to to make sure an operation is successful, we'll always, it just seems to me, from the outside looking in, that they'll always err on the side of pushing the envelope forward. And, and then again, how do you, how do you police uh, a, a rogue state, for instance? You mentioned North Korea and Iran. Uh, you know, the public reporting has already linked North Koreans to uh, the Bangladesh heist and some of the uh, issues around SWIFT, SWIFT implementations uh, there. How, how do you really police... Uh, rogue states or rogue actors yeah so so to respond to the first part of your question about how can this actually like if states want to push the envelope um so i think states aren't unitary actors right you you always have people within a government who will be more hawkish than others and you will always have those who will argue that certain things shouldn't happen because they set a precedent or they invite others to retaliate so if you have a very explicit agreement where it says this is something the international community declares to be off limits, it strengthens those within government who will push against the most hawkish uh, positions within government. Um, In this specific specific instance, when it comes to the global financial system, there's a lot of self-interest not to do this. So whereas with other norms, you you might have less of a self-interest argument and more of a, well, the, the, the... there's more of a normative angle to it. In this case, there is self-restraint because there's self-interest by the major economies not to do it, which reinforces the norm, right, which right, leads right, to the right. second, which leads to the second part of your question: the rogue states, those states that might not be integrated into the global financial system and might still want to target it because they see it as an asymmetric advantage. Um, I think, as we see it play out with regard to North Korea now in the nuclear context. Even North Korea still has friends today, right? Uh, China and Russia continue to veto uh, resolutions in the UN Security Council or more uh, stricter sanctions. If you have an international agreement where the G20 agrees that this is something that's very important and ought to be protected, it makes it a lot easier if there is a violation through North Korea to then actually take steps and try to impose consequences and impose costs on potential violators. Now, in the North Korean case, that's the toughest nut because there are already so many sanctions in place, it's hard to imagine what else could be done to try to deter them from anything. Um, But I think there are other actors that fall in a gray zone uh, where such an agreement and political commitment could still be very valuable, be it Iran uh, or other countries that might still consider targeting financial institutions for political gain. Right, and the, and the information sharing component of your proposal is is meant also to be a deterrent there, where if there's a commitment to really share information about hostile uh, players that are going against this commitment, we might, you know, for some of these, you know, gray areas, you might get a, a deterrent there. Uh, yeah. And that's been, frankly, when, when I talked to some of the banks at the beginning of the project, some of them responded, well, we don't really care if it's a nation state or a very or a criminal actor who attacks us. We want to be resilient against any of them. So we'll, we'll just take our measures to be protected against any type of threat. Um, so I think the, that's where as you, the second pillar is where the real benefit comes in for the, the banks in that if you get states to also cooperate when these incidents occur, that's what helps them to actually tackle some of the cybercrime threats that are also getting more and more severe. Right. 
Are you paying attention to this collateral damage issue? Uh, and, and I've been focused on, on, on really looking at the uh, implications of this not petia, which originally was meant as a, or, or was believed to be a ransomware attack. Turned out it was much more destructive wiper type attack. And the collateral damage, I, I believe there are up to three multinationals, Maersk, Merck, and uh, today Nuance, uh, confirming that losses have been in the range of 300, it could be up to $400 million in losses in revenues, losses in uh, incremental costs associated with remediation, restoration, cleanup. Um, and, and these guys were not necessarily targets. They were victims of, of you know, code that just went awry. Um, do you worry that there's also a component of collateral damage that could have significant impact on the uh, the infrastructure of our financial systems? Yeah, and is and, this something and, and, you're paying attention to at all? Yeah, um, and and frankly, I think that's especially in the wake of shadow brokers and the mm-hmm. fact that that we now have tools that are widely available that were clearly developed by some of the most sophisticated. Uh, actors out there and they are now in, available to people with a lot less so- sophistication uh, I, I'm definitely worried about that um, because and this goes back to our earlier conversation I think what's so uh, concerning about how the threats might evolve in the next couple of years if you're if you are a hacker who has some skills but who's not that sophisticated you can use some of these tools and cause a heck of a lot of disruption and harm um, because you could create something like not petty on a warm like uh, uh, malware um, and you are not able to be precise in who you actually want to target. What I think makes nation states different like the US or Israel or Russia is that they usually have the sophistication that they can be a lot more targeted and a lot more precise with what they want to do. Now, not Petya is, I think, a slightly different story because the U.S. government and half a dozen other governments have now publicly... Yeah, the West blamed. have publicly blamed the Russian government for it. Exactly. Um, so, And I think it sends a very powerful signal where now the White House is saying, listen, uh, these indiscriminate malware attacks that don't distinguish between targets and that are hugely disruptive, uh, that's a no-go. That's where we draw the line, and, and that's you can't do that. Um, but whether that actually that might work for Russia because they might they have hackers who can be better skilled at preventing that, but whether that will help with North Korea or any of the other thirty states that we know are developing offensive cyber capabilities now, that's a I'm significant so worry. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did did you find that the Obama Xi agreement on um, on on uh, let's call it cyber relations? Uh, was successful, uh, successfully implemented, and did, uh, have you seen a significant sh- change in 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 operations post? Uh, I don't remember what year that agreement was. It may have been two thousand sixteen, two thousand fifteen, after the big OPM hack. Do you yeah. the, have you seen a significant uh, improvement in operations since then? Yeah. So. I fall into the camp of people that um, come to conclude that I think the effect that the agreement was effective, um, and this is based on conversations I've had with both people in the U.S. government and the national security community, as well as people out on the West Coast uh, who are working in the various threat intelligence units. And the reason why I've I've come to the conclude that I think it has been effective is 
because it's been both experts on the East Coast and on the West Coast who have seen a decrease in, in activity after the agreement. And these are people who are who disagree on many other things, right? Like this was still after Snowden. This was still after a lot of people out on the West Coast would be very skeptical of anything that the U.S. government would say. But when it came to when it comes to actually this the malicious activity coming out of China, I was surprised by how much of a consensus there was after a few weeks of the agreement that there had been a significant decrease. Um, now, what I would say, there have been reports recently that apparently there has been an uptick again uh, since the beginning of the year, uh, and we can speculate why that might be and whether it's actually a violation. But at least for the for the year and a half immediately after the agreement, um, there seems to have been a significant decrease in the malicious activity. Do you believe that there's a a, a place for? Uh, and I, I asked this to a bunch of folks because I'm uh, especially curious about this, uh, that, that it's ever uh, appropriate for security vendors to whitelist or turn a blind eye to a nation-state operation when there are legitimate uh, national security interests at risk or even if you uh, simplify it down to a police department using malware to go after pedophiles or go after uh, real criminals, uh, that there is a place or there's any sort of room for discussion around whether uh, an anti-malware vendor or a defensive vendor should uh, be part of the conversations about the the yeah. need for these types of attacks or, or are you in the camp where malware is malware and there's no room for that discussion? Yeah. Um, yeah. It, uh, to be honest, I haven't, I have made up my mind personally, and, and, and I'll tell you why. Um, I think it's a really hard question. Having grown up in Germany uh, um, as a kid and having been educated in you know everything that happened during World War One and the rise of, uh, of Hitler and what happened at the time, um, when you're asked this question of whether there are certain circumstances under which a government's national interest or responsibility worldwide to avoid certain harm um, legitimizes the type of collaboration where a company would support that activity. I can see scenarios where I would want somebody to support a government that's trying to avoid uh, a genocide from happening or uh, a major terrorist attack from happening, right? Correct. So there Um, is a legitimate use for malware. Uh, to thwart, let's just call it a terrorist attack for for, for the purposes yeah, of discussion, and 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 we put markings on bombs on on in the kinet, in the kinetic war realm. Why can't we yeah, put so, markings? The argument is why can't we put markings on our malware so that the vendor can see, uh, okay, this is quote unquote related to that operation. That's a good, yeah, and, and I this think uh, I'm not a I'm not a proponent of this as well. Just to make it clear, I'm just uh, uh, yeah playing devil's advocate and trying to get a, a conversation going around about whether it's even it's even appropriate to have these discussions. Um, I think it's definitely appropriate. And um, I think there's what you're just referencing is the how this could be technically implemented, which I think is a really important discussion um, that complements the, the legal discussion that has been taking place after Snowden of, of the U.S. government having to 
use the legal mechanisms to let companies know if they want something from a company, be it through uh, law enforcement challenge channels or otherwise. Um, so I think the question to what extent there might be technical ways to help make that clear as well, I think is one that hasn't been enough investigated. Uh, I noticed a year and a half ago, I think, there was an interesting statement from the Pentagon uh, talking about wanting to make cyber weapons louder. Um, there hasn't been much discussion after that, but I think this entire discussion around whether there are technical ways to more clearly identify or delineate malware that's being used by a military is a, is a fascinating one. Yeah, it's it, it's interesting, and I and I and I and I, I, I assume it's happening in back rooms. I just don't, uh, I, I don't. And, and the question I ask is whether it's the question I ask a lot of folks is whether it's appropriate, ever appropriate for a for a defender to even entertain that type of uh, conversation. It's fascinating. Uh, yeah, and then I think back to the uh, if we accept that there are certain types of um, scenarios where working with a government where the government really has legitimate interests and the defender should work with the government, um, where do we draw the line, right? Because we clearly see such a legitimate interest for some circumstances, but the further down the, the slippery slope you oh, get, the harder dangerous it is. rabbit hole, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, do you... <sighs> I have so many questions and so many things in my head, and I know I know we don't have much time. We're uh, coming up against the end here. Um, do you get a sense that uh, uh, major governments are, are are very very careful about their operations? And and you know we talked about shadow brokers and and the fact that uh, uh, major weapons are now in in quote unquote the wrong hands. Uh, or yeah. is it has it is it becoming a wild wild west? I guess the question is: uh, are, are we getting better at not necessarily containing these things to where they belong, or and and not Petty is a perfect example of 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 code getting out of control and causing significant damage uh, to multinational companies and 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 cost and, and it could have been worse. It could have been a it could have been a power plant somewhere, or it could have taken uh, an airport offline, or. Uh, do you get a sense that we're in this wild, wild west, or is it getting better at uh, containing these types of operations that will never go away? It doesn't matter the ethics of it. It doesn't matter what we argue. Um, yeah. It's here to stay. Um, I think it's both. Uh, I think you have some states who have used some of these tools in the, in the past few years that have become uh, more restrained. I think the experience from Stuxnet uh, definitely had an impact on on how some states think about this. The problem is that you now have a lot more states who are who who want to develop offensive tools in this space, uh, who are new to the game, who are still experimenting, uh, and I'm worried that they're a lot more daring than some of the other states who might have already been doing this for much longer. So, on the one hand, it's getting less of a wild wild west because some states are becoming more responsible. On the other hand, it's becoming more of a wild, wild west because there are now a lot more, many more states that are trying to do this. Right, and their operations are not as mature as the others, and, that, and that's where I guess there's a lot of uh, chaos emerging. Yep. Uh, where can people find the book? <laughs> um, thanks for asking. It's, uh, 
available on Amazon as well as on the website of Cambridge University Press. Um, both available as an ebook uh, and the old-fashioned hard copy. And it has a fantastic title, Cyber Mercenaries, <laughs> The State Hackers and Power, available at a bookstore near you. Um, I just say carnegieendowment.org is where I can, you can find Tim's work. Uh, Tim is also uh, on Twitter. At uh, Maurer Tim, uh, so M-A-U-R-E-R, -E uh, Tim is the Twitter handle. All right, thank you very much, Tim. Best of luck with the book. Thanks so much. Thank you, Ryan.